Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello. This is Jen. Hi, Jen. Hey, this is Kelly. How are you? Hey, good. This is Margendra. I just joined as well. Oh, hi, guys. Uh, hey, thanks this for is so-, so cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the, um... We are, we're well. We're recording now, but don't worry. I'll edit everything out. Um, I've got the script up here. I'll do a little intro, and then we'll we'll get started. Um, I will say a few things just to um, for you guys to keep it fresh in your mind. Um, I typically tell people to, to uh, talk a little bit more slowly than you think you need to. Um, it's so much of communication is like body language and stuff. Um, but you know, obviously on a podcast listeners won't have that. Um, so, uh, it's usually a little bit better to talk a little bit more slowly. People tend to get nervous and then they like speed through what they want to say. Um, so if I catch you doing that, then we'll, I'll just ask you to like kind of repeat yourself or whatever. Um, and don't worry about, yeah. And don't worry about like, uh, verbal stumbles or ums or anything like that. I'll take out uh, all of those that I can. And if you misspeak or or you get a little lost or whatever, and you want to start that part over, don't worry. Just tell me, hey, I'm starting this part over, and then you know start over and keep going. Um, Great. I and that I do everyday life. <laughs> <laughs> right? Yeah, we just like chill. I talk fast. Yeah. <laughs> just curate the uh, spoken conversations that would be perfect <laughs> um all right so, so do, do you guys have any questions um i uh, have I one so. question oh i just have a quick one so okay. when we okay. wrote this um kelly when we wrote this manuscript together we were still both at stanford but i've now left the institution i mean that could i don't know do you want me to say that or like i'm not sure you know what, what? You want. Yeah, I think what you can do okay. is whenever I say, like, uh, you guys introduce yourselves and give give your background, you can mention, you can just mention that, that, you know, I was okay. at Stanford whenever we did the study. I'm now working at blah, blah, blah. Okay. Very you know, good. you know, just, you know, like that. I don't think it's a huge, massive deal. So, Okay, yeah. very good. Just want to make sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, all right. So here we go. Make sure I'm recording. Yes, I am. Uh Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Lab Medicine podcast series. My name is Kelly Swales, and I'm the web editor for Lab Medicine. Joining us today are Drs. Burke and Andrews. They're going to talk a little bit about a paper they recently co-authored that will appear in Lab Medicine. Uh, Dr. Burke, Dr. Andrews, could you introduce yourselves and give us some background on your work and field of practice? Sure. Uh, My name is Jennifer Andrews, and I'm actually a pediatric hematologist by training. And when I wrote, uh, co-wrote this manuscript with Dr. Virk, I was uh, still at Stanford, where I also, because I'm duly trained in transfusion medicine and blood banking, wasn't attending there. Um, And we 
I helped to take care of this baby both on the transfusion medicine side of my life and as a pediatric hematologist. Hi, Kelly. Thanks for having us on this podcast. Uh, my name is Morgan Derberg. I'm currently an assistant professor of pathology at Stanford and the associate director of the Transfusion Medicine Fellowship here. I recently completed my fellowship training in transfusion medicine here at Stanford and have a background in pathology. Um, just wanted to say a little bit, uh, a little bit more about Stanford as well. We um, have a blood bank that serves uh, both an adult and pediatric hospital. And the pediatric hospital, LPCH, Lucille Packard Children's Hospital, uh, has a combination of um, uh, is a combination of a children's hospital and also uh, an OB/GYN facility as well. Um, so the uh, OB/GYN department here and neonatology departments were pretty exceptional, and they um, uh, were a big part of this case as well. Uh, they received pretty complex um, referrals from our community and from other academic institutions. Um, and so we specifically interact with the maternal fetal medicine division on a pretty regular basis because of their fairly complex serology cases with multiple alloantibodies uh, allo and also a wide array of other, array of other complexities such as abnormal placentation. Um, so we've really established a great relationship with them and it helps that we have our own immunohematology reference laboratory on site. I believe it's one of only maybe eight IRLs that are located directly within a hospital blood bank. Uh, so that really leads to some high quality training and um, our, the ability to do um, a lot of this um, reference work uh, in-house. Kelly, can I redo my intro? Mine was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, you absolutely Andrew, you're so fantastic. Oh my gosh. Um, okay, sorry. <laughs> okay, uh, let's see. I'll, I'll kind of lead you in here. It's like, hi, okay, yeah, blah, blah. Could you introduce yourselves and give yourself some back? Could you introduce yourselves and give some background to your work in field of practice? Sure. Thanks, Kelly, for having us. Um, my name is Jen Andrews, um, and I am a pediatric hematologist by training. I also did my transfusion medicine fellowship at Stanford, where I stayed on faculty for several years. And at the time Mergender, Verk, and I co-wrote this manuscript, I was still on faculty there. I've since joined um, the faculty at Vanderbilt University in Nashville, Tennessee, Music City. Um, and this case is such a great illustration um, of my two fields coming together. So I treated this infant, as you'll see, um, before he was born, both as a pediatric hematologist um, and then after he was born also as a transfusion medicine physician. Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, both. Thank you both uh, for joining us today. So let's get into the case. How did this uh, case and this patient initially present to your institution? Well, it's a pretty interesting case uh, for uh, those listeners who have maybe read the um, manuscript already, uh, we really get into the details of a specific antibody that we identified. Uh, but this case actually came to us for a completely different reason. Um, it was for an IRL um, kind of a reference workup, uh, but we received it because the patient or the mother initially had a negative antibody screen at her first prenatal visit, but then demonstrated uh, anti-B in her plasma at her 28-week um, gestation uh, visit. And so this couldn't quite be explained because there was no history of previous uh, pregnancy, transfusion, or program uh, administration. 
Um, so there are some reported cases like this, and it usually results from some unidentified exposure, uh, such as an early miscarriage. But our focus really at this time was to perform the anti-D titer. Um, so uh, during that testing process, we had uh, performed an antibody screen as well and identified another weak alloantibody that was pan-reactive to the screening cells. Um, and uh, at that time and throughout the testing, the autocontrol was negative. Um, so this is where the case got really more interesting and some additional testing was performed uh, essentially until the patient's plasma was exhausted. Uh, but the anti-D titer was 16 at that time. So although we weren't able to uh, clearly classify or identify that uh, additional alloantibody, uh, the clinical focus really turned towards fetal, uh, fetal monitoring uh, by ultrasound. Yeah, and just like Dr. Virk was saying, we, we uh, worked really closely with our colleagues in maternal fetal medicine at Stanford. And so they had started um, monitoring this fetus with serial Doppler ultrasounds um, and so um, eventually at 31 weeks, even though the anti-D titer rose to 32, the ultrasound continued to be normal. Um, so our colleagues were pretty reassured by this, as were we. Um, unfortunately then, um, the pregnancy took a turn and at 34 weeks, an ultrasound by MFM revealed an elevated middle cerebral artery peak velocity. Um, and for your learners in the audience, the actual value um, was 77.1 centimeters per second, but really you have to measure this via multiples of the median. And a critical value is 1.55 MOMs, and this value unfortunately was reached at 34 weeks gestation. Um, that really is quite sensitive and specific for possibly severe fetal anemia, um, although the longer in gestation um, and more past 35 weeks or so, the less sensitive this ultrasound methodology is. So at that time, um, given all the clinical information and the laboratory information, our colleagues in obstetrics referred um, this mother to Stanford for immediate induction of labor. Um, and that's how we came to have another specimen. Uh, so at the time, at our institution, all admitted women to our labor and delivery unit required a type and screen specimen be sent um, to our blood bank. Um, and so we received another specimen on this very um, interesting patient. Yeah, so then when we received that uh, additional specimen, um, it's kind of going to be difficult to do this part of the um, workup or explain it or, and do it justice within a quick summary. Um, but we're uh, essentially our reference technologist at that time went through almost the entire arsenal of serology methods um, that you could probably find in a technical manual. Um, and this was just to identify the, the single alloantibody that we had previously seen as a, kind of a weak pan-reactive antibody. So we'd used everything from various potentiating agents, enzyme treatment, multiple screening panels with different high-frequency antigens. Uh, but our first real clue came with uh, using DTT on a, a panel of screening cells. And that eliminated some of the reactivity um, in some of those uh, uh, panel cells. And so after that, there was a little bit of, uh, we kind of narrowed our field of where we were looking at and we performed an extended phenotyping on the mother uh, of the Kell blood group system. 
so that was entirely negative. And of course, um, seeing that uh, initially was a bit of a surprise and uh, we almost assumed that it wasn't right, so it had to be repeated and verified by, not, by another tech. But um, sure enough, the Cal blood group system was entirely negative. And so we were working under the assumption that this uh, mother was Cal null, uh, which is an extremely rare phenotype. And then we were able to dig up some rare um, archival anti-KU reagent plasma from our freezers. I'm not sure where our, our reference technologist found this, but I think it was labeled as being uh, from the, the 50s or 60s. And so this entire process really just demonstrated um, how valuable the IRL was and its resources. I'm not even sure how many vials of this type of rare reagent plasma may exist around the country or in the world. That is is pretty crazy. My background is in clinical laboratory science, and I've worked in blood bank uh, as a generalist many, many, many years ago. And I can actually just picture some technologists digging through the back of the negative seventy freezer to get to get the anti sera. Have uh, either of you encountered this phenotype in a patient before? Never. Um, so absolutely never and this is sort of the kind of case you read about as probably once in a lifetime maybe once in a career kind of case um, but as Mergender knows living in California where we have a lot of immigration and a lot of diversity of people's ethnic background we certainly have encountered other rare cases also being an, uh, an IRL um, we obviously are sent other cases from around the West Coast um, to work up rare causes of HDFN. Um, so our group actually published another case um, of HDFN from anti-MUR, M-U-R antibody. Um, and we also presented an RH, anti-RH17 antibody at AABB several years ago, uh, which hopefully the, my ex-resident and I <laughs> will be complete with that manuscript soon. Um, We've also been involved in, obviously, cases of HDFN where we identify more than one antibody. Um, those can be somewhat tricky. Um, and we recently had a case of what's the most common cause of HDFN, which is ABO incompatibility. Um, but this was in an O mother um, of African descent, and she gave birth to a B infant um, and had incredibly high titer anti-B, um, and that infant actually needed to be exchanged. Um, so we've certainly seen some rare once-in-a-lifetime kind of cases of HDFN. So what uh, were your, oh, I was going to say, go ahead. I was also just going to say that these rare cases, obviously, the IRL is a member of the American Rare Donor Registry, and so we obviously queried them at, at this point when we had figured out that this was an anti-KU antibody um, to look for compatible units, and they didn't have any. Oh, wow. So what were the major concerns at this point, and um, can you kind of talk about the options that you were left with? Yeah, so as Jen was uh, describing there, a real major concern at this point is um, HDFN or hemolytic disease of the fetus and newborn. And so uh, kind of more precisely, we're trying to figure out how we're going to support a potentially anemic fetus at birth and possibly the mother as well if there were any complications during delivery. Um, there is nothing available from ARDP and uh, we're looking into literature at this time regarding uh, possibly uh, performing maternal blood donation and found some references. 
Um, so as um, Dr. Andrews was explaining about the rarity of these types of cases um, and then being kind of a once in a career type of situation, this was during my fellowship and it was um, uh, the first time I'd experienced anything, uh, any case like this as well. Um, so I was not very familiar with uh, maternal blood donations, but found that it was fairly safe from uh, some of the reports that we found. Uh, but it was still unique because many of those reports um, were in situations where they had identified the antibody fairly early on so they could perform a blood donation um, and then administer iron or, or EPO uh, to allow the mother to recover her hemoglobin before delivery. Uh, so this is a really unique scenario, but we did feel that collecting the maternal blood was the best option uh, while trying to really balance the, the harm of anemia in the fetus and mother. So we had that discussion with um, the obstetrics team, and uh, this was an ongoing discussion while we had um, talked about delaying the induction as well. And we had Stanford Blood Center um, come over to LPCH, um, where the mother was, uh, to set up essentially what was, uh, what was a single donor mobile drive. Uh, I think this was the first time they had done anything like that at the children's hospital or even the adult hospital. Um, so the uh, Stanford Blood Center collected a single unit of RBCs in CPDA1 preservative, and they began the processing um, and infectious disease screening back at the blood center. Um, then at this point, we were really coordinating a discussion and plan with um, the OB team uh, and neonatology uh, because we planned to split that product that we had collected so we could wash uh, half of the unit immediately uh, at the time of uh, delivery uh, just in case the uh, fetus needed it or the newborn needed it. And then we would save the other half potentially for a later time for the newborn or if the mother needed that transfusion as well. Uh, so this was a really uh, extremely well-timed and coordinated um, process. Um, so there was a lot of communication going on between our department and the others, OB and neonatology, um, and it, I think it worked really well because of that situation and how um, everyone was constantly in discussion. Yeah, I agree, and I feel really lucky. I mean, I think that my training is sort of the crux of this clinical issue, um, and our colleagues in pediatrics, um, for those listeners who are not trained pediatricians, they may not know that it's actually standard of care now to delay cord clamping for two minutes or so as long as the fetus can tolerate it. And so I think the saving grace in this baby's case was that he was relatively healthy and our neonatology and pediatrician colleagues were able to do standard of care delayed cord clamping such that his actual first hemoglobin level was 14, which is normal for someone his age. Um, and so mother also was a prenup, so this was her first pregnancy, first delivery. So though it took a lot of coordination, I think it was part of the natural process for those women who have delivered. Um, you know that your first baby takes a lot longer than subsequent pregnancies and babies. So I think we had um, time and luck on our side. Um, we ended up obviously getting a sample uh, from the newborn as well to do a type and screen. Um, the baby's blood type was O positive and the screen was obviously positive. Um, for IgG only uh, on his DAT, uh, sorry, I'm gonna repeat that. His screen uh, was pan positive and then we obtained a sample for DAT testing which was positive for IgG only. And then our IRL um, was able to perform an elution, um, which showed 
anti-D and anti-KU antibodies consistent with the process that we knew, you know, was occurring in his mom. Um, the pediatricians did a fabulous job taking care of him. He obviously had um, hyperbilirubinemia as part of the process for hemolytic disease of the newborn um, and treated him um, appropriately with phototherapy. Um, his total bilirubin peaked to around 13 at 10 days of birth, which is nowhere near those levels needed for exchange. So he did quite well. Um, I continued to follow him. Oh, sorry. I'm going to stop there. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's totally fine. I think that this case really highlights, um, I think, uh, something that doesn't get talked about enough, and that's how different... Uh, different departments and different disciplines really come together to share knowledge and uh, do the best thing for a patient. And I think this is a really great case to highlight that sort of thing. Um, so you were about to discuss the clinical status of the mother and the newborn. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that after they were discharged? Sure. So um, I was so lucky uh, to follow this young baby after discharge um, as his pediatric hematologist. And so part of the normal process, um, uh, normal physiology for babies is they actually have this nadir, in, uh, nadir sorry, in their hemoglobin around two to four weeks after birth. Um, the earlier occurs, uh, the more premature they are. So he had a hemoglobin nadir of about 7.8 at three weeks after birth and continued to do really well. Um, there's some evidence in the hematology literature that IVIG can actually temper the need um, for exchange transfusion. So as we were getting down to that hemoglobin around eight level, um, we got a little nervous and we decided to give him IVIG. Um, and he actually never required a blood transfusion. He had a real brisk reticulocytosis um, after that IVIG infusion, and his hemoglobin quickly recovered, um, and I actually was able to discharge him from our outpatient hematology clinic around two months of age. Um, mother, thankfully, also did well. Um, her hemoglobin dropped to about 8.5 on the day after delivery, and recovered as an outpatient. Um, and we kept in touch, actually, uh, for several years <laughs> um, after this, after her baby went home and after she was discharged from our obstetricians. Well, I'm certain that she was very grateful for everything you guys did for her. So I, that actually doesn't surprise me at all. Um, speaking of, of, well, you know what, stop. Uh, so how do you prepare for future pregnancies in the, this sort of situation? Well, those are a lot of the conversations that we have, we had after um, I discharged this infant from our clinic. So, I mean, this was a really tough clinical scenario, and I think we were quite lucky that both mother and baby did well. Um, we obviously ended up performing um, Kel antigen testing on the father, and he, like most folks, um, had one or both of the antigens, right? And so basically all their future pregnancies um, would result in an infant that potentially could have severe hemolytic disease of the newborn. So um, we talked a lot about testing um, her relatives. So mom actually also has a sister, um, interestingly, and, so, and her parents also, who could serve as potential donors if they were also Cal, Cal Null. Um, 
And then also we t- I sent mom to go see a colleague in adult hematology um, for her safety also uh, to potentially bank um, and freeze units for herself for any um, urgent or um, emergency medical care. And then potentially for future pregnancies, um, we could, if possible, freeze those units and use them for intrauterine transfusions. What are some of the major lessons that you guys learned that may help others in a similar situation? As you said, this is a really rare case, so it's hard to anticipate what what might be needed. So what would you guys say were your major lessons? I think you really expressed one of the most important lessons uh, a little bit earlier, Kelly, uh, when talking about the coordination between the uh, multiple departments and teams. I mean, of course, we realize the, the extreme benefit of our um, IRL being in-house and the work that they did and the resources that they have uh, with their rare plasma and the multiple uh, screening cells. Um, so definitely take advantage of your own IRL or the uh, potential reference work of your nearby blood center or other academic institutions. Um, and then the understanding of the safety and feasibility of serial um, or even single um, blood donations during pregnancy and the use of iron or EPO to help supplement um, the recovery of the mother's um, hemoglobin prior to delivery. Um, but really, the, the most important was that communication and coordination. Uh, the joint decision about uh, the safety and the timing of the induction was really critical. Um, and then it's, I think this is especially important in these large academic institu- institutions. Uh, we can become a little bit subspecialized and kind of trapped working in our bubbles here. Um, so it's really important to just take advantage of the colleagues all over the hospital to ensure you know, the best outcomes for all of our patients. Yeah, that's, I think that's a really great takeaway to take from this case. Well, I want to thank you guys for taking the time to talk with us today. I found uh, this case really interesting, both reading about it uh, in, in paper form and hearing about it today, and I think our readers and listeners will as well. Thank you, Kelly. Thank you. All right, and that's, and that's how we do that. So, um, yeah, I'll have I'll I'll work on editing this this week. Um, it should be up on the uh, LabMed website within the next couple of weeks. And um, if you guys listen to uh, podcasts through the Apple's uh, through you know iPhone, Apple, or whatever, which we also have a the podcast is on Apple, so you can do it that way as well. Great. Will you let us, Will you let us know by email, like when it comes out, or? Yeah, absolutely. I'll I'll let you know that it's live on the website and that it's it's, it's up and ready. Um, and I know, McGrinder, I know that you've got some other or you've had papers in the past that appeared in lab medicine. If you've got some mm-hmm. upcoming papers or whatever that you think would make uh, a good podcast, don't hesitate to contact me. Okay, sure. I'll reach out. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. And uh, again, thank you guys both for for taking the time to do this. I know you guys are busy and this is um, a really great asset, I think, to our readers. So thanks again. Much fun. Thank you. All right. Take care. (laughs) Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. 
No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.